Hiya, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of uh, posts on the From Poverty to Power blog. Still doing four a week because of furlough, so you've got a slightly uh, shorter than usual um, account this week as well. So the first of the um, a week was a second part of Nikki van der Gogh's um, piece on the link between the pandemic and women's rights. So last week she um, summarised the, 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 the negatives, the impact of the pandemic on women's rights. Um, this time she was looking at what does it mean to build an economy that centres care, not carelessness. So the question is, what would a caring economy, a caring world look like? And she looked at what many organisations and groups has, uh, have been writing about in the pandemic and picked out five issues. Um, first, the Global North can learn a lot from the Global South. There's been a lot of progress on, on uh, centering the care economy in, the, in our response to the pandemic in many developing countries. Second, care is not a soft option. It's also an economic approach. So there's some quite crunchy, serious economic policy consequences of taking care seriously rather than just treating it in a sort of hand-wavy way. Third, addressing climate change is key. Fourth, we're only as strong as the weakest members of our society, so we need to centre their needs and listen to their voices. And five, care is not just a women's issue. Increasing numbers of men are recognising the need for change. So here's Nikki's conclusion. It's time for change. We have the ideas on how to do this. That change must be structural and personal, intersectional and connected. The year of the pandemic has also been the year when feminists and climate change activists and the Black Lives Matter movement have shown the indivisibility of inequalities, as well as the vital importance of solidarity. The powerful must listen to the powerless, white people listen to people of colour and men listen to women. Change will involve a reshaping of the contours of our world so that the global north no longer dominates the global south and climate change ceases to devastate the planet. These are radical shifts, but the crisis has provided an opportunity for change as well as a huge challenge to the way things have always been done. This will not be easy, but as Simone de Beauvoir, the 20th century French feminist writer and philosopher said, never forget that a political, economic or religious crisis will be enough to cast doubt on women's rights. You'll have to stay vigilant your whole life. Great quote to end that. The second post continued with the theme of dreaming of a better world. This one was from um, Maria Carrasco from Chile. Chile's in this really interesting place at the moment where um, following a big protest movement, the government has triggered a new constitution constitution writing process which is something that seems to happen a lot in Latin America and is a chance for people and countries to revisit their identity. A constitution is a very you know, fundamental um, text which outlines the values of a country and its people. So Maria, um, the, 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 the intro says in October 2020 Chileans voted overwhelmingly to create a new constitution. If Chileans are to capitalise on this historic opportunity, says Maria Carrasco, an Atlantic Fellow for Social and Economic Equity at the LSE, they must dare to dream of bold new ways to address their problems and guide our institutions. That includes focusing on the environment, happiness and economies of care and meaning. And this is a piece that was originally published in Spanish in El Dinamo in Chile. So Maria writes, we're living through a historic moment. Soon Chile will have a new constitution that replaces one written in the era of the dictator Augusto Pinochet. But what does it mean? 
are we deciding really what constitutes, you know, this is a constitution, so what constitutes us as a society? Um, and then she talks about the three aspects that she wants to pick out as kind of guiding principles. The first is ecocentrism, which requires us to look at nature as a living being with its own rights. And she points to Ecuador, which in 2008 became one of the first countries in the world to make nature a legal subject. Article 71 of that country's constitution states that nature has the right to complete respect for its existence and for the maintenance and regeneration of its cycles of life, structure, functions and evolutionary processes. Any person, community, people or nationality can demand that public authorities fulfil the rights of nature. So that's pretty radical. It means, you know, if you, if you damage nature, it's essentially as bad as damaging uh, a human being. The second principle is happiness, taking happiness as a guiding concept. And that leads us to think about other aspects of being human, to take inspiration from sources of meaning beyond the workplace, to develop our capacity for leisure, to take time to become part of a community, to care for the environment and to, gauge in, to engage in other pursuits, including spiritual ones. And all of which brings us to the third guiding concept we should dare to dream of, the promotion of economies of care and meaning. So her conclusion is, by including these guiding concepts in the new Chilean constitution, we would be taking on board ideas that are essential to our sustainable coexistence as a society. They allow us to move away from the material concerns of so-called economic progress and to emphasise real prosperity by focusing instead on caring for our ecosystem and for all sentient beings from their very beginnings to the end of their days. So this is really interesting stuff, taking this opportunity of the new constitution to fundamentally rethink the values that should guide a country like Chile. Third, I brought it all much down market and uh, did a report back on my first week with my new students at the LSE. I teach a course on advocacy, campaigning and grassroots activism uh, with Tom Kirk. Um, the first class is always about discussion on the nature of power. And I was really impressed by the ideas and the range of experiences and thought that was already present in the group, which is the biggest yet, 75 students this year. Um, and we asked them to buzz a bit, you know, uh, all, all online, of course, but uh, asked them to buzz on how their disciplinary background shapes their understanding of power. So some of, the, some of what we got from the feedback on that was actually your disciplinary background matters a lot if you've had a fairly quiet life. But if you come from somewhere like Georgia, China or Syria, actually it's your lived experience that shapes your understanding of power and your, your disciplinary background is a bit second order. So, okay, right. So, you know, my views are shaped by physics. Tom's are shaped by his philosophy undergrad. And so he always goes on about Foucault, but that's basically because we've had a pretty quiet life up uh, until we got to college. The second one that came out of this was zero sum versus positive sum. So students with a background in international relations or history tend to arrive at a winner-takes-all view of, of power as a zero-sum game where for one group to win power, another group must lose it. But if you come from other studies, other disciplines like gender studies or English literature, you're more likely to have a positive-sum view that one person's empowerment need not come at the expense of others. In fact, it can benefit others. You can have a positive-sum where we all benefit from one group's empowerment. Third thing which came across is that, that there's a gap where we don't think enough about the psychology and the emotions attached to power. You know, we talk about structure and agency. So structure is the kind of structures of society. Agency is the agency of individuals and groups. Um, and we talk about power within, 
uh, you know, some nice ideas from Joe Rowlands on that. But power within is a rather general concept, yeah, a sense of personal rights and entitlement. Um, it's no good stopping there, right? We, we all know from our experience that some people are just more powerful than others. You know, some people have psychological determinants uh, of personal power. Some people are charismatic. Some people are leaders. Some people are determined. Some people are just terrifying. Um, and it's quite hard to pin down why, but we need to understand that because that's absolutely crucial in terms of social movements, relationships, how, how change happens. Um, and then there's a whole other bit, um, some fantastic work uh, on, on, you know, what about introverts? You know, it's not a crime to be an introvert, but how, do you, how, how can you be a kind of introvert activism? And there's a really nice book on, on, on craftivism, uh, which, which shows how you can bring introverts together to do activism based on crafts rather than based on, you know, placards and shouting in the streets or, or going up to ministers in corridors and doing scary things. Then there's the darker side of psychology as well, the personal ability to coerce and control others. You know, people are people play dark games with each other and they control each other. So all of this um, is, is, is missed out, I think, in a lot of activist discussions on power. And then a final one for the for the power geeks. So the people who actually use power in terms of designing campaigns or designing influencing and strategy. Um, we've used lots of different frameworks over the last four. This is the fourth year of the course. Um, but students come to the course looking for practical advice. You know, a lot of the LSE course is quite theoretical, so that I think they come on the activism course because they want to know, you know, what to what they can do, what they can use when they get back to the real world and when they want to start changing the situations around them. And we have definitely decided that um, Joe Rowland's framework of four powers, power within, power with, power to, and power over, is the most practically useful. Um, so, you know, we, we do talk about Foucault and talk about sort of complex sort of French definitions of power and understanding of power. We talk about the power cube from John Gaventer and Jethro Petit and others at, uh, the, uh, at the Institute of Development Studies. But those things are good for understanding power. They don't tend to be as helpful to students when it comes to actually designing a strategy. So we've kind of upgraded Joe Rowland's, uh, I think, in relation to the other power frameworks this year. Anyway, if you're not working on uh, using power in your day job, that would probably meant absolutely nothing. But I find it quite interesting. And then the final post of the week was um, a really interesting piece from uh, Mitchell Watkins and Mushtaq Khan at the at SOAS, the, uh, the, the University of London. And it brings together two things which are very rarely combined, which is working on climate change, helping country, poor countries adapt to climate change, and trying to crack down on corruption. And they take Bangladesh as their case study and did some very impressive research. Um, and they present their findings in the blog and thanks to them for offering it. Um, our research in Bangladesh identifies two practical ways to make climate change adaptation funding more effective. First, anti-corruption monitoring is more effective when led by locally influential households. Secondly, and more importantly, their involvement can be increased by designing adaptation projects to maximize dual use, ensuring that communities benefit now, example being embankments against floods, also double up as new roads, which help people get their products to market. So if you can provide a dual use where people get tangible benefits now, then communities are gonna be more interested in making sure that those projects are built and that no one runs off with the money. So I think that's a really interesting um, uh, uh, connection they've made there. and. You know, the, and some very sort of rigorous research which comes to those conclusions. 
And what's interesting is Mushtaq in particular um, is a big pioneer on, on thinking about political settlements. You know, why do political elites agree these different settlements? What's in it for them? How do you align incentives to get people to agree? And for somebody on the NGO side of things, that always feels a little bit dirty, a little bit like you're accepting inequalities of power. You're accepting that you have to work with elites who may not be treating the downtrodden very well. So I asked him to put in a little piece on that in the blog because I thought it was an interesting question. And they say, not surprisingly, dual use benefits, so things like roads getting, getting stuff to market, are disproportionately beneficial for those with above average incomes from land and businesses. But from the perspective of anti-corruption, this is not a bad thing. When climate change projects provide immediate benefits to groups with the effective capacity to monitor, they take a greater interest in monitoring progress. And when they get more involved, other citizens do too making anti-corruption efforts much more effective. The data shows that when this happens, the benefits are broad-based. It does not suggest that to make anti-corruption more effective, the distribution of dual-use benefits should become more unequal. So what they're saying is, chillax, relax, don't worry. Even though you are incorporating these influential households, they bring other, the rest of the community with them and the whole community benefits from the resulting improvement in the quality of the climate change adaptation work. So, so their conclusion is, yeah, why, why does this matter? Well, conventional anti-corruption approaches that focus on formal mechanisms of transparency and accountability have had limited effects in Bangladesh. Our research suggests a feasible strategy to improve anti-corruption by designing climate change projects to maximise dual-use benefits for local communities. And this triggers self-interested monitoring. Self-interest is not a bad thing. Self-interest is an incentive and it, can, it gets people to buy into things and do stuff when they're busy and stretched and, you know, there's a lot of, time, a lot of demands on their time, particularly by influential individuals and results in effective anti-corruption in those adverse contexts. And with that, uh, have a great weekend and I'll talk to you all next week. Bye.